And uh, with that, my friend and brother Steve Heimler, it is now your time. Without further ado, Steve Heimler. Thank you. Uh, no, you know, it feels like I'm important or something, and I, I don't, I don't begrudge it. Okay. Oh, hi. Well, as you know, I'm Steve Heimler, and it is my time. It is my time. Now, um, today, we're going to be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what we've been doing for the last few weeks is talking about what does it mean for us as Christian people to work, to actually wake up on Monday morning and go into work or go down to your basement or sit with the kids or whatever it happens to be. How is it that we as Christians work? What does God, what did God intend as he gave us work? The first thing we saw is that he actually made us for work. We saw that in the book of Genesis chapter one and chapter two, that not only did God, was God a worker and that he made us in his image so that we are somehow like him and therefore are workers, but he made us for work in paradise. Like before Genesis chapter 3, before sin entered the world, before the fall, all that, before death and destruction and all that came in, God made us for work. And so paradise, one of the main things that we did there was work. Okay, so that was number one. Number two, I talked about how God blesses the world through our vocations, that God has promised that he will feed the world. He has promised that he would clothe the world, care for the world, all of these things. And he does that almost a couple of times through miraculous means, but almost never uh, through miraculous means. He does that through the vocations that he calls us into. He promises to feed the world, so he calls farmers into a service, and he calls merchants and bakers into a service to get that food into our bellies. And so therefore, it is, very, it is a very real thing for us to say that no matter what our vocation is, we are doing God's work. And God is blessing the world through the work of our hands. And so what I hope is that through what I've said, through what Matt has said, that, that the, the process of work, like the day, the work-a-day life that we all get up and we go into, whether it's paid, whether it's unpaid, whether it's, you know, volunteer, whatever it happens to be, I hope that at least a little, that your work has been re-enchanted. It's so easy to forget the glory of the thing that we get to do each and every day that God works through us to care for the world. So I hope it's been re-enchanted uh, at least a little. Now, today we're going to talk about one more element of work, and that element is rest. We're going to talk about resting from work. Now, now, last week, if you were here, you remember I talked about, you know, what is the, what is the Christian way to work? And, and you know, I, what I was hoping to do was to, to enlarge our imaginations away from sort of, oh, well, you know, we put the symbol on the truck or we keep the Bible on the desk and all those things are fine. Uh, or we try to engage people in spiritual conversations. Like, that's great. That, yes and amen. But I tried to enlarge our imaginations beyond that 
to say that you know, the most Christian way to work is actually, if, if it's true that God is serving the world through our vocations, then the most Christian way to work is to serve the work, to become the best we possibly can at that work so that God will serve the world in, a, in the best possible way. Now, I want to add to that. Now, I know if something is perfect, it can't be more perfect, despite what our Constitution says, but I think what we're going to talk about today is even more perfect in terms of how God will serve the world through our work, and that is through our rest. What is the most Christian way to work? It is by resting one day in seven. If we don't rest, we don't understand work. It's not, it's not as if there's two separate things that, well, I, I really know how to work, and God works through me, and stuff, but I don't know how to rest. No, no, that means you don't understand any of it. So, so let me, let me uh, give you some, uh, my own argument, some credence here uh, from Eugene Peterson uh, from his book, uh, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He says this, we cannot rightly understand the Sabbath apart from work, nor rightly understand work apart from the Sabbath. It, it's almost like um, driving. With, with one pedal, like remember we've got two pedals in our car, and if you say, oh, I know how to drive, but you only use the gas pedal, it's like, no you don't. No, no you don't, you, you can, can you actually get from point A to point B with only one pedal? Yeah, but you're doing it at the, at the very uh, steep cost of potentially your life and whoever's with you because you're going to have to dodge and weave through traffic if you never slow down. Driving requires two pedals. And if you say, I know how to drive, but I only use one pedal, no, you don't. <laughs> and so I think what Peterson is trying to tell us here is that work, God has given us for work two pedals. If we only know how to use the gas pedal, if we only know how to go, we don't know how to stop, we don't actually know how to work. We don't actually know how to drive. So God gives us two pedals. And what I want to try to argue is that as we learn to rest from our work, we are actually inviting flourishing into our lives. And I want you to hold on to that because it's not going to sound like that. It's, I mean, I know who I'm talking to talking to, you know, 21st century Americans here, we, we know what work is. And rest feels like it's going to subtract something from us. But in fact, it's not. So what I want to do is to talk about this under three headings. Number one, what is the Sabbath? Number two, why do we keep the Sabbath? And then number three, how do we keep the Sabbath? So what, why, and how? Number one, what is the Sabbath? Now, remember from the passage that we read at the beginning from Genesis chapter 2, God rested, it said, on the seventh day. He rested from all his work. In fact, it says that God rested no less, in those three verses it says it no less than three times. God rested, God rested, God rested. Now, my question is, why did God rest? Like, we know why we rest. We're tired. We're exhausted. But was God tired and exhausted? It says that he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And let's just recount what he did in creation. Like, literally all that exists. 
Now, that sounds like exhausting work, but did he strain himself as he worked? No, he just spoke and it happened. This was not strenuous work for God. And so if he's not exhausted by the end of his work, why is he resting? He rested because rest is the completion of work. Or we might say that rest is the consummation of work. Now the word rest literally means to cease, right? To to stop. It's like the period at the end of a sentence. I mean, we, we all, maybe not all of us, but many of us have experienced text messages from uh, preteens and teenagers, and the, when, when there's no punctuation, it's, a, it's anybody's guess as to what this actually means. It's, it's the punctuation that signals one thought is over, the other thought is beginning. This PSA for teenagers, I love you guys, uh, and I, I love your text messages, but a period never hurt anybody. Now, um, that's what it means. Or, or think about like a, um, a notation, a rest notation on a piece of sheet music. What that means is that you stop one movement and you begin another. These, these punctuations, the rest, all of these things, without them, the, the meaning of whatever work it is, whatever communication is trying to occur, is meaningless. It loses its meaning. It's just a cacophony of sounds. So rest literally means stop. So when God rested from his work, he ceased from his work. Okay, let's keep going. Now, we're trying to figure out what is the Sabbath. Number one, it means to cease. Number two, It says in Exodus chapter 20, this is when God is giving the Ten Commandments to his people, and one of those commandments, namely the fourth one, is to keep the Sabbath. Now, what does he mean by this? Let's look at Exodus 20, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So I want to focus on that one um, phrase in there, that this is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? It means to cease, number one, and then turn your attention to the Lord. That's what he's saying here in the commandments. This is why we worship. I mean, this is why we're here today, because for thousands of years, Christians have gotten together on the Sabbath, and then for thousands of years before that, Jews have gotten together on the Sabbath. We get together on the Sabbath to sing glad songs of salvation, to hear the word of God preached, to come to the table. We do this to turn our attention to the Lord as we cease from our work. Therefore, Sabbath, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? It means to rest, cease, and it means to worship. But we're still tempted to think in our culture today, this is kind of a throwaway concept. I mean, maybe that's too harsh. Optional, maybe I should say. It's an optional thing that we do. But I wanna show you that God takes the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath 
very seriously. Uh, if you read through the Bible with us or you've ever read the book of Numbers, um, in Numbers 15, there's a very interesting uh, story. Um, a man wakes up. You know, this is when the, the children of Israel are wandering through the desert for 40 years, wandering through the wilderness, and a man wakes up. It's a Sabbath day, and he decides he wants a snack. And so he goes out, and he starts collecting some sticks in order to kindle a fire so he can cook his snack. So... What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that in Exodus 35, it says God tells his people that it is strictly forbidden to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. So this man knows, I want a snack, I'm going to kindle a fire on the Sabbath, but it is strictly prohibited to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And so I'm sure that the people who knew what Exodus 35 was like, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Are you actually gathering sticks today? And he's like, not that big a deal. I'm just, it's just sticks. It's not a big deal. Well, word apparently spreads that this man is gathering sticks, makes it all the way up to Moses. And so Moses asks the Lord, what do I do with this man? He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And to us, it's like, what do you, what do you, why are we even holding a trial here? The man's gathering sticks. Like, okay, surely, surely what's going to happen is going to get the equivalent of a divine slap on the wrist. But no. The, the judgment comes back. Stone him. <laughs> Kill him. Capital punishment for sticks. Okay? Now... We hear that and we're like, calm down. This, is, that, th- this does not merit capital punishment. That's only because I would say we're not really understanding what's going on when this man is violating the Sabbath. This is what the old Puritans would call a presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, the old Puritan Matthew Henry can help us understand. He says, The language of presumptuous sin is eternal truth is not fit to be believed. This is is what the man with the sticks is essentially saying inside of his own heart. Eternal truth is not fit to be believed. The Lord of all not fit to be obeyed. And almighty power not fit to be either feared or trusted. It imputes folly to infinite wisdom and iniquity to the righteous judge of heaven and earth. Such is the malignity of willful sin. So God takes Sabbath violation seriously. And as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, that the people continued to violate the Sabbath and ultimately that ended in their exile from the land. And it was, God was clear with them. In Leviticus chapter 26, he says, if you keep breaking the Sabbath, you will be ejected from the land. The the connection between Sabbath and exile is absolutely clear. And yet they keep doing. And so finally, one day, the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple, and they, car- they kill all sorts of the Israelites, and they cart the survivors off into exile in the land of Assyria and Babylon. Now, 
here's what's interesting. We, we've talked about this before. I've even mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. Um, we know that the, if you were to pick up a Hebrew Bible, the ordering of the books is different than we have in our Bible, in our Old Testament. And the end of the Hebrew Bible is not the end of our Bible. Like, it's all the same words, it's just they're arranged differently. The end of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Second Chronicles. And look at how the book of Second Chronicles ends. The people are in exile, and it ends like this in chapter 36. It says, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's the end. That's the end. So, so in a lot of ways, the story of the Old Testament, we, we might even title it the tragedy of the Sabbath. We might, we might it's certainly, the, the narrative theme here is the failure of the Sabbath. And so, because the Sabbath was of such little worth in the sight of God's people, they invited deep and lasting calamity into their lives. Okay, so that's, that's what the Sabbath is. That's why it's important. Now, why, number two, do we keep the Sabbath? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Let's see the commandment again. He says, remember the Sabbath, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And now what I did not read earlier, for, why do we do this? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and make it, made it holy. Okay, so what we're seeing here, why do we keep the Sabbath? Here's the commandment. Why? Because in six days, God made the world. And on the seventh day, he rested. God established this order, weaved it into the very fabric of time and of the universe that we work for six days and we rest on the seventh. This is how God has ordered the world. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he made human beings in his image, right? So that means that we are in some way like him. So we work like him, but we also rest like God. Now to us, to, to never cease from working, to work ceaselessly, to, in our culture, in our minds, that means, oh, we're just getting ahead. This is a good thing to do. Maybe not forever, at least for a season. You know, we're trying to get ahead. And, and you know, it's almost a badge of honor when somebody says, hey, can you get together? And it's like, no, I'm busy. Busyness, oh, Lord help us. Deliver us from busyness. But biblically, what we saw from Matthew Henry is that to work ceaselessly, to work without rest, is to call God a fool. It's to say, 
I know that you've established this order for the universe, but let me show you how life ought to be lived. Let me show you how work ought to be done. We work seven days and then we start all over again. So, why do we keep the Sabbath? Number one, because God established this order and we are made in his image. He is the infinitely wise one. We are his servants. Why do we keep it? Number two, let's look at the second time God gives this commandment. We have a repeat of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, but a slightly different reasoning here. Deuteronomy chapter five. He says, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, we've done, we've heard this. Okay, why should we do that? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Oh my goodness, okay. So he says, you gotta keep the Sabbath because remember, when you were in Egypt, there was no ceasing, there was no rest. And that cycle of never ceasing and always working, that was the indication, my people, that you were slaves in Egypt, not free. So he says, we keep the Sabbath to confess and to remember that we are not slaves, right? He's given this commandment to them after they've come out of Egypt. And he says, but remember, to work without ceasing indicates that you are a slave. So, it's a beautiful thing to give ourselves to rest because when we cease to work, it is a confession with our body, with our mind, that, we, that, that God cares for everything, that we can cease, that we can rest, and God continues to hold all things together. God continues to work on our behalf. We can rest because it is a confession that God will not. He is always holding all things together. Okay, so two things. Why do we keep the Sabbath? Number one, because God ordered it this way. Number two, to confess that we are no longer slaves. Now, thirdly, how do we keep the Sabbath? How do we do it? If you've been listening, my guess is, at least for some of you, there's some confusion. Like, okay, what about Jesus, right? Like, aren't we free from the Sabbath? Aren't we free from the law? What about Jesus? And the assumption, listen, the assumption here is that the Sabbath, I want all of you to listen to this because this is so important, that the Sabbath is there to take something from us, right? But what God is saying is that the Sabbath is a gift. Rest is a gift that God gives us. We think of resting one day in seven, we're like, that would take too much from me. So let's think about that. Yes, Jesus did alter our relationship with the Sabbath. That much is absolutely true. Um, So let's consider that for a second. Uh, From Mark chapter two, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, 
Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Jesus did, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Oh my God, there's so much... Oh, there's so much in that. Let me just take it one at a time. Number one, so the Pharisees condemn Jesus' disciples for plucking heads of grain, rubbing it in their hands, munching on it as a Sabbath day snack. Now, it's not, it's not surprising that the, Sabbath, or excuse me, that the Pharisees were very strict on the Sabbath. I mean, we just established what happened in the Old Testament, right? The whole narrative of the Old Testament is the failure of the Sabbath and the judgment of God and the ejection from the land, all of that came down to the Pharisees. And so they were extremely fastidious about not breaking the Sabbath. We will not do what our mothers and fathers did and therefore generate the wrath of God. And so they had very strict rules about the Sabbath. But the disciples, of course, Jesus' disciples, they're not breaking God's Sabbath law. They're only breaking the Pharisaical Sabbath laws, right? So that's number one thing to notice about this. Number two, Jesus isn't concerned about this. He's not concerned about his disciples doing this. Like, he could have said, maybe the most natural thing for him to say in our minds would be, hey, that's your law. Pharisees, not God's law. That would make total sense, but that's not what he says. He, oh my gosh, he goes big, watch. Instead, he says, you remember the story about David when he ate the showbread at Abiathar's house? Now, Pharisees were like, yeah, we know that story. Maybe you don't know that story, but the, essentially David is on the run from his enemy, Saul, and he, go, he's, he's, he left his house with his men. He's got nothing to eat. He's got nothing to drink. And so he goes to the house of a high priest named Abiathar. And he says, do you have anything to eat here? And he's like, well, no. All we've got is the showbread. And that specifically is reserved for the priests by law. And he gives it to them. And he eats it. And Jesus says, you remember that story? And they were like, Yeah. Consider that nowhere in Scripture does it uh, condemn David for eating that bread. That was only lawful for priests to eat. Consider that. David is not a priest. He's, a, he's not a king at this point. He's been anointed king, but he is certainly not a priest. Therefore, he was not eligible to eat that bread. And the Scripture does not condemn him for this. Okay, so that's the second thing to notice. Jesus isn't concerned about this. He actually is going to do something much bigger. Third thing to notice, he uses that story about David to make a point. The Sabbath was made for man, for human beings, not man for the Sabbath. It's a, oh my gosh, it's a marvelous statement. It means the Sabbath is a gift. It's not a means 
of human justification before God. Like if you can keep all the the right proper rules of the Sabbath, then God will be pleased with you and bring you into his everlasting kingdom. No, he says, no, the Sabbath is a gift to humankind, not something that is subtracting from us. It's a gift, not an instrument of our justification. Now, the fourth thing to notice, and this is the climax of the whole passage. At the end he says, so, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What does that mean? When we hear the word Lord, we think of like, like domination, you know, somebody in authority and, and they're dominating others. But I don't think that's what it means. What, what is a Lord except someone who has servants? And so the way I interpret this is he's saying that the Sabbath is my servant. The Lord of, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is my servant and the Sabbath serves my purposes, Jesus says. And he shows us exactly what, if that's confusing, don't worry. He shows us exactly what that means in the next passage. Uh, The next passage, a man with a withered hand. What what that means, I don't know. But some some sort of uh, infirmity comes to him, comes to Jesus on a Sabbath while he is preaching in a synagogue. And he wants to be healed. And the Pharisees are looking at him like, oh, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And he does it. He heals this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, interpreting this, on the Sabbath, on God's day of rest, we must do good. We must loose the bonds of oppression and witness the inbreaking kingdom of God. And now that this man is healed, you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now notice, Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus never breaks the Sabbath, according to God's laws. He breaks it all the time according to the Pharisees' laws, but he never breaks the Sabbath according to God's law. And since we are remade in the image of Christ, that's for, if you are a Christian, you believe that Christ forgave you for your sins by his atoning blood, then that means, as Paul teaches us in Colossians, that we are remade into the image of Christ. And so that means we also, as Christ did, must receive this gift of Sabbath. I mean, it's crazy. I have to fight with myself on this too. Like, it's crazy that I have to argue with us, all of us, me too, to to receive a gift. But it is a gift, and Jesus received it gladly. And he is the, we are made in his image, and therefore we must receive it gladly as well. But we can't help ourselves, that obligation it feels wearisome to us for some, for some reason. So let me just try to re-enchant it just for a moment. Uh, the old Scottish theologian, P.T. Forsyth, said something magnificent. Like, okay, he says, time is a sacrament of eternity. Yes, time is a sacrament of eternity. Okay, what does that mean? Now, sacrament, of course, is some sort of object or ritual through which God delivers his grace, real grace to his people. And so 
only through, and so what P.T. Forsyth is saying is that time itself is a sacrament. Now, I'm not, some people are getting sweaty right now. I'm not suggesting we add sacraments. I know we've got two. I'm good. We're good. But I think the, the language is really helpful. Time is a sacrament of eternity. Through time, we actually receive God's grace, the grace of eternity. But only as we properly conceive of time will we receive God's grace through it. Let me explain. Remember when Paul teaches us about the table. He says, there, th- this is a sacrament. This is a place where we eat the bread, we drink the cup, and through it, God delivers grace to us. It's not a magic trick. This is just how he has decided to do it. But there is a proper way to approach this table, he says. The only way that we can approach this table is if we are examining ourselves, right? So the only one who's eligible to really take this is the examined self. The one who has considered what, what, how they have need repentance and has repented. So Paul says, in order to receive the grace of the sacrament, there is a proper posture towards it. And so it is with time. If time really is a sacrament, or we should say sacramental, then only the one who works and rests in rhythm will receive that grace. Reckon we ought to go to Eugene Peterson again. He says, when we remember the Sabbath and rest on it, We enter into and maintain the rhythm of creation. We keep time with God. Sabbath keeping preserves and honors time as God's gift of holy rest. It erects a weekly bastion against the commodification of time, against reducing time to money, reducing time to what we can get out of it, against leaving no time for God or beauty or anything that cannot be used or purchased. It is a defense against the hurry that desecrates time. Yes. Now, One more way Jesus changes our relationship with the Sabbath. It's interesting that the next verse, after Jesus heals this man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath, the next verse in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It was because they thought Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, that they sought to kill him. Like, if, if I asked you, like, why did the, why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why, why do they all want to kill Jesus? What, what would you say? Would Sabbath breaking ever enter your mind? But no, it's clear that it's because he's violating the Sabbath that they want to kill him. Remember the guy who was gathering sticks? Like, they know what happens when enough people in the congregation begin to reject the Sabbath. They know what happens, and so they want to kill him to get him out. But we know that Jesus himself actually kept the Sabbath perfectly. He rested when it was time to rest. He worshiped when it was time to worship. He did good when it was time to do good. He did all things well. 
But the Pharisees, as you probably know, rigged the jury and put him to death as a Sabbath breaker. So we don't easily comprehend how much the Sabbath means to God. Week after week, if we refuse to rest, we are imputing folly onto infinite wisdom. And therefore, as, as, as small an infraction as it seems to reject the Sabbath, therefore, if we do continually, we deserve death. <laughs> that's, 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 that's heavy, I know, but that's what the Scripture says. But we must see Jesus who kept the Sabbath for us. He died as a Sabbath breaker. And through that, through that one act, he says to all of us, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ is the true Sabbath. Jesus Christ is the true place where we rest from all the work that we do, not with our hands, not with our minds, but with our souls in order to justify ourselves before God. And work becomes one of those places that is very easy to do that. But Jesus says, come to me. I have kept the Sabbath for you. I will give you rest. But more than that, when we rest... We're tasting eternity. And just because Jesus fulfilled it, that doesn't mean that we don't do it. God made it this way. He, he made the whole fabric of the universe this way. We, we, we don't do that with any of the other commandments. Like, well, Jesus set us free, so let's worship some idols. No, we don't do that with any of the other commandments. And so, we still keep the Sabbath, but our relationship to it has changed. But when we rest... We are also tasting eternity. We see this in Isaiah chapter 66. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's talking to his people. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. Yes, even in the new heavens, even in the new earth, when all has been resurrected, we still keep time with God from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's astonishing. So when we rest here in this age, we are tasting the glory and the freedom and the beauty of the age to come. Now, I've only been vague about how we keep the Sabbath. If you go throughout the church, history of the church, you're going to see that different places and different times had their lists. Here's what you do, here's what you don't do. I'm not going to give you a list. Jesus has told us we rest, we worship, and we do good. If I was to give you anything else besides that, I, I would be binding your conscience in a way that Scripture does not. So my invitation to you is to take all of these things. Take, take what has been said. Take the worship that rises in our hearts when we consider that Jesus is our true Sabbath, that Jesus kept the Sabbath in our place, and bring it to him and say, okay, Lord, what do I do? I want to enter into the flourishing 
of the Sabbath. Now, as I mentioned, we come to this table. Not only is time a sacrament for us, but this very much is a sacrament. The bread and the cup, these are means by which God and Christ invite us to rest. We have come from a week of work, and it's very easy, even though, yes, we are serving the world, God is serving the world through our vocations, it is very easy to take that work and use it as the means of our justification in the sight of God. And so we come to this table where he reminds us, no, all the work has been done. You are forgiven, so be at peace and rest. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do long for the rest that you provide.